The Bible is a big book. For a church to teach through all of its stories in any meaningful way would take years. So what usually happens is certain stories and characters slip through the cracks. For those of us who have spent any amount of time in church, we probably know a good deal about Abraham, Moses, David, and Jonah. We certainly should know about Jesus. But there's a good chance we haven't heard much about Deborah, or Phoebe, or Mary, or Priscilla. So, in this series, we hope to rediscover the important and often untold stories of women in the Bible. We appreciate you listening. May these stories compel us all to contemplate the beautiful and sometimes overlooked diversity of God's people. We are more than half the church. All right, we are in week four of our sermon series, Half the Church, subtitled Important and Often Untold Stories of Women in the Bible. I am fully caffeinated. I've had a cup of coffee. I do have about 60 or so slides to get through tonight. I don't know what it is about these stories, but they are compelling and they are rich and they are beautiful. I will say this, however. We're going to leave a lot of stuff on the table yet again. If I could pack in all of the beautiful things that I have been learning and things that I believe God has been opening up the door for me to maybe understand a bit better, we would be here for a really long time. And I know that you don't want that, but I do want to at least um, help us to look at a familiar passage with new eyes. This is Proverbs chapter 31, beginning in verse 10. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies, Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate, the word of God for the people of God. So as we consider uh, Proverbs 31, 10 and following, 
maybe there's a dominant first reading. As we just see the words off the page and we begin to enter in and, and, and strive for some application, this is a poem about a wife of noble character or a capable wife or a noble wife or many different ways you could uh, qualify that, a, a woman of valor perhaps. And this, this poem is laying out all of the many things that she does for her own benefit and for the benefit of her family. Perhaps we have been in interpretive communities in the past where this poem is laid out as an example for young women to follow, for wives to live up to. And perhaps some women, even in our community, have felt, man, I better learn how to stitch some clothes or I better learn how to go and trade things in the local square. I don't know how this works for you, but you hear this long list of attributes that demonstrate this woman and her industry and the way that she cares about her family and not only that but the things that she does this is a dominant first reading in our culture and I think that for some women they have felt the um, the pressure to live up to that now I would like to say as we often do here at TRP I'd like to step back from that first reading and begin to set this text in its ancient Near Eastern context before we do anything else and everybody gets a big smile on their face and says yeah let's do that right so the way that this poem begins, it says a wife of noble character. That is Eshet Chayil. You guys want to say Eshet Chayil? You got to get that guttural back there. It works best if you drink a glass of milk real quick and you just got a lot of that phlegmy stuff in the back. Eshet Chayil. It's a wife of noble character. And it says, who can find? This is important as we go on, not for our first reading, but as we see how this thing is brought into the fuller context of the book of Proverbs. It says, a wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. The, the term there literally in the Hebrew is he lacks no plunder. This is a term that seems to evoke that this noble woman, and in our minds, when we think about nobility, we think about proper. We think about Dalton Abbey. We think about flowing skirts and high tea, perhaps. But in this text, what the author is attempting to communicate is, this is a warrior princess who is going about her business. Her husband does not lack plunder because she is going about to provide for her family in a warlike way. The idea of this verse, says Tremper Longman, seems to suggest that the woman is a warrior in the battle of life. That is a beautiful imagery, especially for my, my moms and my dads who stay home with their kids. And that when the week is coming to a close and it's Friday around the witching hour and your kids are driving you crazy, that is a battle of life that is waged against our souls. And this mom is winning it. The idea of this verse, it seems to suggest that the woman is a warrior in the battle of life. She goes out and fights on behalf of her family and comes back with victor's spoils, which allow her family to thrive in the midst of conflict. And there are many ways that we can connect this to a contemporary society. Perhaps it's the mom that goes to the PTA meetings and fights for her kids. Perhaps it's the mom that goes to the school office and, and talks to the teacher or talks to the people that are bullying her kids. Perhaps it's the mom that stands up and makes that tough text to get the other mom on the line and say, hey, let's talk about how our kids are interacting. Perhaps it's the mom that just advocates for her kid and wants to put them in a place of success. And these are battles that we face and that we fight. And it's not limited just to moms. 
But in this passage, I think that we can see how that plays out for her. But here in Proverbs, in its ancient context, it's not just about going to the PTA and the battles with the other moms. The image that's being cast is the warrior princess is going off to war and bringing home the booty or the plunder or the spoils of war for her family, which has led some scholars to say that this is best read as a heroic him. It's taking on the same motifs as, a, as, a, as, as an epic to a warrior would. And the mom or the wife of noble character is living into this. She is, she is a hero in the scope of this poem. And you can see how this plays out. She gets up while it is still night in the early morning. And, and some of the men in the room that might like to hunt or even some of the women that like to hunt, you know about this. When it's deer season and it's three in the morning, you got your shotgun all ready. And you know like you're, you're duck blind is out there somewhere. I have no idea what I'm talking about now. You put on your Carhartt jacket and your, and your camo and you head out before the sun comes up. And what happens is it says that this mom provides food for her family. And that word there, uh, tariff, it's not just food. It actually means prey, something that is ripped apart. The verb there from the Hebrew talks about like ripping or shredding. She's going out to the duck blind, finding the animals, ripping them apart, and then taking them back home, slamming them on the dinner table saying, food's up, who's ready for breakfast? And immediately, Brian, I get this image of you, but not you in the duck blind. It's Megan in the duck blind. And she's finding these animals, ripping them apart and taking them home for her kids. This is what this wife of noble character is doing. She gets up while it's still night. She provides prey for her family and even portions it out for her female servants. It says that she sets about her work vigorously. And I'm just trying to thematically put this together. So these aren't in order if you're following along. She sets about her work vigorously. Literally in the Hebrew, it means that her loins are girded up with strength. Woo! That is a warrior motif here. She's heading off to battle. Her loins are girded with strength and her arms are powerful. Now, I will be man enough to admit it. On the one time out of every three months when I go to Planet Fitness and I scan the room, Sometimes there are some women, I say, I'd like those arms and shoulders. <laughs> and this is the image that we're seeing here. She is a woman of power and her learns are girded up with strength. These are, these are warrior uh, imagery that is usually associated with men, but here in this poem, not so. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. Most people in this room have no idea what that means. Am I, am I correct in that? I, have, I, I had to go to um, Google just to see how to pronounce distaff because I don't know what that is. But going to my commentary, it says the distaff or doubling spindle, it's a wooden staff onto which the wool or flax was attached before it was spun into thread. And you say, oh, right? Are we all clear? No. So I go to Google image search and I find this. I find a colonial woman spinning thread, <laughs> right? But here, what we're seeing in this text is this ancient Near Eastern text where the woman, she's not just going out to get food. She's not just going out to do these things. She's also a skilled seamstress. And we'll see this throughout the poem here. But imagine, if you will, this woman, she's got the distaff there and you got your wool or your flax and the spindle at the bottom and you're, you're making thread. Now, I have this in the warrior section because there's a figure in uh, Ugaritic literature, the goddess Anat 
who is the war goddess par excellence. I was kind of geeking out over this this morning. I'm sorry that my sources are going to let you down here. This is from Wikipedia. It says my, my Ugaritic collection is kind of, kind of scans in my office, but it says Anat appears as a fierce, wild and furious warrior in a battle, wading knee deep in blood, striking off heads, cutting off hands, binding the heads to her torso and the hands in her sash, driving out the old men and townsfolk with her arrows, her heart filled with joy. This woman, her man gets killed and she says, not on my watch. And she goes to the Egyptian goddess of death named Moat and she kills him. And we see this image of Anat, and she is a bad mama Gemma, okay? But what some people would say is, in this passage, the distaff and the spindle, it's not just for dainty colonial women, like, with their thread. These are also the instruments that the war goddess par excellence would use in war, and there's a hint or an echo underlying Proverbs 31, where the noble wife is like a knot who will take care of business. Now, this is not what Proverbs 31 ministries is all about. This is not what women usually hear, but this set in its context, it is an ode to the power of this woman. I also think it's important for us to see not just the warrior motif, but Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, the entire poem is an acrostic poem. So think about sweet frog for a second. The frog of sweet frog supposedly stands for fully rely on God. And Christians love to eat Christian frozen yogurt. So that's a, it's a win-win for all of us. It's, it's tasty. They've got a, a slide over in this. You can just let your kids go and you can have some good Christian frozen yogurt. It's a nice little Tuesday afternoon. Now, Proverbs 31 is not an acrostic in the sense of spelling out a word. This is an alphabetic acrostic. Hebrew poetry does this quite often. It starts with Aleph and goes all the way through the 22 or 23 characters of the Hebrew alphabet, depending on what they do with Sin and Shin, of course, just trying to cover all of our bases here. But it starts with Aleph, and the first line begins with the letter Aleph. The second line begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Bait. The third line begins with the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Gimel, so, so on and so forth. Some people will say that this poem, because it's an acrostic, is trying to lay out the qualities of a noble wife from A to Z, completely encompassing all of her beauty and her goodness. Now, if you read this closely, however, they leave a lot of stuff out. For example, I want to read this just because I think this is, this is awesome. In Proverbs 31, uh, verse 30, it says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. In an ancient patriarchal society, this is strange for the author to say, listen guys, it's not about what she looks like. It's not about her beauty. It's about her fear of the Lord because in the book of Proverbs, that is the beginning of wisdom. So here we see this um, A to Z sort of, sort of layout, although it's leaving a lot of stuff off the table. It doesn't talk about her physical appearance. It doesn't talk about her sexiness in a technical sense of the term. Uh, it moves away and it really just talks about her warrior-like characteristics and the fact that she is a woman of industry. It says that she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands or really um, 
her hands work with joy, as the Hebrew term is more uh, better translated. She works with joy in everything that she sets her hands to, and she is proficient and prodigious in the way that she uh, goes about making these clothes. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She not only does she sew stuff, she goes out to the town square, sells it, and brings dinner home. If she's not out in the duck blind catching it, she's also using what she has to provide for her family in a way that celebrates her industry. She gets up while it is still at night, we talked about that, and she goes out and provides food and pray for her family, and she portions it for her female servants. So she gets up early in the morning to go out and to hunt, but then it also says she sees that her trading is profitable. She sees that there's a market for the things that she's doing, the things that she's making. I don't know if she's making a nice scarf. I don't know if she's making a nice little pantsuit. I don't know what she's doing. Uh, there are a couple of things that we know that she's making, which is going to you're not ready for it, but I'm going to tell you, but not yet. It says, and her lamp does not go out at night. She gets up early in the morning to go get food and put it on the table. And she stays up all night making these, these clothes and these things for people so that she can go and sell them and make money to supply for her family. Now, I have to tell you about this because I think it's funny. But just be, beware here. We're, we're going to step into PG-13 territory, Okay. I went to Facebook and I said, ladies, help me understand, you know, how you have read Proverbs 31 in the past. And this is always dangerous because you'll always get some, some comments from uh, some, some men that want just to jump in and, and throw their thoughts around. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Well, we got one comment from a friend of mine quoting a book from uh, Stacey Eldridge, Captivating. I know some of you have read it and liked it. And upon this passage, she says, if her light never goes out, when does she have sex? And then he just left the conversation. Like, well, thank you, but that's not really helpful here. I, so I responded with something. To, what, 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 what? And then my friend from Britain pops on. We did PhD work together in Philadelphia. And she said, I don't want to shock your readers, but I believe it's entirely possible to have sex with the lights on or even, I know, during the day. So this poem has nothing to do with the sex life or lack thereof of the industrious woman. Okay, but we see that she's busy at, at her tasks. I really just put that up there because I thought it was really funny. And if you disagree with that, apologies. We can have coffee later. Um, try to make that nice. When it snows, it says, she has no fear for her household for all of them are clothed in scarlet. That's an unfortunate translation in the NIV. It really is probably better worded as like a double portion of the clothes, meaning they're warm. It has nothing to do with the fact that they're um, expensive. That's the next verse. She says she makes coverings for her bed, really fancy and nice ones. She is clothed in fine, perhaps Egyptian linen and purple. Purple in the ancient world, as you know, was really expensive. The dye that uh, people would use took a long time to produce and also it was dependent upon a very small number of, of animals. I forget the actual one up to this in my mind right now, but it was, it was costly and it was a sign of one's wealth. So we see here this woman uh, perhaps is, is wealthy, but she's also not divvying out the work to her servants. She's working at all of these tasks. And then it says, she makes linen garments. That word there, sadine, could be translated as undergarments. And she sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes or girdles. So the things that she's making, underwear, fancy ones, 
No, am I the only one that thinks that's mildly humorous? Okay, fine. Be that as it may. Uh, so she's making coverings for her bed and she makes these linen garments or undergarments and she's selling them. She's supplying merchants with, with girdles and sashes, however you want to translate that. She considers a field and she buys it. A better translation is she considers a field and she takes it. She's going out there to, to take a field for herself and for her family. This is not something typically that women do. And out of her earnings, she's planting a vineyard. Now this is really hard work, planting a vineyard. It takes time for grapes to produce and for wine to be, to be made. So the fact that she's doing this, it demonstrates a couple things. One, she is committed to where she is. Two, she has a, a, a lot of means to make this happen. And three, she's a really hard worker because you'd have to clear uh, the land. You'd have to make terraces up a hill, perhaps. In Isaiah chapter five, it talks about this sort of thing. And then you also have to make the wine. So in that, the hole there at the bottom of the screen is where you would dump all of your grapes and then you would squeeze the juices out with your feet. It would run down the small channel into a bigger vat of wine, which would probably be um, filled with plaster or something that would then be moved off to, to ferment. And if this doesn't help paint a picture, perhaps for the 50 and ups, we can remember that one episode of I Love Lucy when she's in the making the wine with her friend. That's what they were doing. But all this is happening here. And this woman, she is a woman of industry. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. You think everything that she's doing is time consuming and intentional. And it is demonstrating her, um, her industry and her talents. She opens her arms to the poor. It's not just about her family. She's also generous in how she treats other people. She is clothed with strength and dignity. This is a common um, Old Testament metaphor where it says you're clothed clothed in something that characterizes you as a person and she can laugh at the days to come not because she's unprepared because she is very prepared and as she looks to the future she says it's going to be good because I have done the work I have counted the cost and my family is ready because of the things that I have done her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. This is really the only thing that we get to know about the, about the husband in this scenario. He's at the city gate where the leaders of the city would take their seat. But here it's only because the wife is so competent and able to lead the family at home that he is able to do that. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things. That same noun there, chayil, the woman of noble character. And here it's saying she does these noble things, these virtuous things. But you, wife of Proverbs 31, you surpass them all. So a couple days ago, it was like International Women's Day, and you see some stuff flying around the internet on International Women's Day. But one of the things that, that I saw was this phrase about empowered women empower women. And if you read Proverbs 31, good grief, you see an empowered woman. But ladies, I'm not so sure how you dive in and you hear this stuff if this is something that empowers you, if this, is, if this is an example that you can strive to and you say, well, I'm going to learn how to sew real quick or I'm going to learn how to, you know, X, Y, and Z and I'm going to be empowered by this woman and live up to that example of what it looks like in the family. But for me, when I hear this sort of stuff, I go into Charlie Brown mode. Oh, I can't ever do that. I can't kick the ball because Lucy keeps moving it all the time. Like, pff, stupid. 
It's like when you get on online and you go into Instagram and you see all the beautiful pictures of the families and you think, I just sat around in my sweatpants today and <laughs> barely made it. I took the kids to McDonald's again just because they asked me to. And I knew that if I just took them, they'd stop yelling at me. Not going on vacation. You know, like you start comparing yourself to people. And when you see this text, this is the comparison that is not super healthy because we see it and we say, I'm nothing like that. This woman and the things that she's doing, I can never live up to that. Tremper Longman says, the qualities and abilities of this woman make one wonder whether the proper answer to the opening question at the outset of this poem is uh, a noble woman who can find. The answer is no one because she doesn't exist. And then he says, there may be something to this intuitive response. Or another commentator says, uh, Proverbs 31 remains a portrait of the most desirable woman, an image of the ideal wife for a predominantly male audience. She embodies no one woman, but rather the desired attributes of many. No one woman could live up to all of this stuff. Or more forcefully, Roland Murphy says, the description of the woman is not truly real. No one can perform all that she does. And we see these commentators and scholars beginning to, to move us away from this idea of, I have to live up to this. This is the model of what it looks like to be a wise woman, and I need to do this, and I better get my family and my marriage and my whatever in order because I am failing miserably. And ladies, I don't know if this is a passage that has felt oppressive to you or felt as though it is hard for you to shoulder or something that you cannot live up to, but I want to free you of that in the next few moments because that is not what this passage is all about. This is not a checklist for you to live up to. This is not something that you have to go out and replicate, at least in the sense that it's for you to go and replicate. I would actually argue that this is an example that everyone is supposed to go out and replicate, not in the, the details of what it's doing, but everyone should be living with wisdom and purpose and focus and intentionality. And men, just let me tell you here, this is not, ha, never has been, never will be a checklist for your wife. If I could just slide over here for a second. I think this is part of the reason why dating is such a train wreck these days. Not that I'm dating, but I know a lot of college students and a lot of you don't want to go on dates because she might not be wife material. What does that mean? Have a coffee with the girl first before you understand if she's wife material or not. You might have this idea of, well, she's not a woman of industry. Stop saying that. That's garbage. Take the girl out on a date. If you need help, I'll give you five bucks. You can just go get a coffee. It's not that much. Why? When did dating become this like really oppressive? Like, oh, I just don't know. Have fun. Say, if somebody asks you, say yes. You might get a free drink out of it. Coffee. Okay. But when we, when we start thinking about this checklist, that's not the purpose of this passage, okay? So now, in the next few minutes, and this shouldn't take long, so just stick with me, I wanna give you a second, not uh, a first reading where we're just seeing the, the words on the page or even an ancient Near Eastern understanding of this text. I wanna give you a second contextual reading of this poem. When we look at just Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, 
It becomes that. It becomes a checklist, either for the women in the audience to live up to or for the men in the audience to judge their wives by or judge their potential wives by. And that's not what it's doing here. Instead, you have to see this poem in the larger landscape of the book as a whole. That was a cool graphic, wasn't it? Took me about five minutes on that one. Okay? But you have to see Proverbs 31 in the, in the larger landscape of the entire book of Proverbs. And in order to do that, we have to say something about the book's structure and purpose. I just want to say that in its original context, this was a book for young men who were training for some sort of courtly duty. This was like written to the elite men so that they would understand what wisdom is so that they could execute it in some sort of leadership capacity. Okay, there's a lot of disagreements on what this looks like if there were schools that were set up for this or what have you. But we see very early on in the book of Proverbs, this was written for young men. That is important as we see the images that are being produced through this book. In Proverbs 1, it says this, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, and the purpose of them are for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight. For receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is what this book is set out to do. And then once we get this purpose, it launches into, listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. The whole image that's being painted in this book is one of a young man who is receiving instruction from his parents to help him understand what it will look like for him to rule wisely or to lead with wisdom. Now, you can also see that when we think about Proverbs, we think about like those little trinkets of wisdom, right? Uh, like a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. Or ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value, but righteousness delivers from death. We think about these pithy wisdom sayings. But chapters one through nine is very different and it's setting up the entire book. Those pithy statements begin in chapter 10. And what we see in Proverbs one through nine is something different. It is setting up this entire book's teaching by remember saying this is for young men who are going out to lead in certain capacities and need to gain wisdom and knowledge and discernment and understanding. And the way that the author does this is by giving two pictures of women in Proverbs one through nine. Very early on, we meet Lady Wisdom. We meet Lady Wisdom. And we see that she is on the corners calling out to these young men, saying, come and follow me. The entire uh, introduction to this book in Proverbs 1 through 9 is about who, young man, will you follow? Will you follow Lady Wisdom? Who will lead you to life? In chapter... Um, Three, it says, blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. In chapter four, it says, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. 
young man, before you go out into the world, who will you follow? Wisdom. The woman that we see personified in chapters one through nine. Or son, will you follow Lady Folly? Now, the interesting thing about Proverbs 1 through 9 is we see this, this personification, this picture of wisdom in the form of a woman. Remember, we're writing to adolescent boys here who are attracted to women. So this is going to be a nice metaphor for them. Are you going to follow wisdom or are you going to follow Lady Folly? And the way that she will lead you to destruction is like this. And we get this image throughout Proverbs 1 through 9 of the adulterous woman who says things like, hey, Hubs is gone. My door's wide open. Young man, come on in. I can teach you a few things. Young man, which way will you go? Who will you follow? Lady Wisdom, who is calling and crying out to you, saying, follow me and get life. Or Lady Wisdom, personified by the adulterous woman, who will lead you straight to death. At the end of chapter 9, it concludes in this way. It says... Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, and she's calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple, she says, come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead." And this whole book is framed with this choice that the young man is to make. Will you follow Lady Wisdom or will you follow Lady Folly and the adulterous woman? Now, catch this. In Proverbs 1 through 9, give me two minutes, in 2 to 5. In, in Proverbs 1 through 9, we get this personification of wisdom as Lady Wisdom. But there is no example. You have Lady Folly and the adulterous woman. But in Proverbs 1 through 9, you just get lady wisdom. There is no person that lives that out until you get to Proverbs 31. And it's no accident that the entire collection ends with this beautiful picture of the woman, the noble wife, the one who is capable, the one who lives out in a way that demonstrates her own wisdom. Remember, the first way that it is, is introduced is saying she is worth more than rubies, the same way that wisdom is described in 1 through 9. This woman is the one who lives in a way that demonstrates wisdom and the author or editors of Proverbs is saying, young man, in the end of all of this, who will you follow? Will you live wisely or will you follow the seductions of your heart? Will you follow down the path of the adulterous woman? Will you follow down the path of the things that will take you away from God and the things that he is leading you to? Or will you choose a wife of nobility and character and wisdom? This text is not a checklist for a wife. This text has a woman that lives out wisdom in a way that is honoring to God. And what the text is saying is everyone within the sound of my voice should live in this way, should follow Lady Wisdom, should pursue after her, should get her wisdom at all costs, because without it, you will die. 
So tonight, I don't know if the way that we have heard this passage in the past has been one that has laid on uh, weight and, and perhaps even guilt or not, but I want to democratize this text a bit, meaning I want to open it up and make it more applicable for all of us. This is not, ladies, a checklist for you to live up to. Man, this is certainly not a checklist for your wife. I hope that we can see that within the, the scope of this entire book, this is something that we are all called to live up to, to be wise people. Now, as New Testament followers of Jesus, it doesn't stop with just living wisely. It doesn't stop with just taking these Proverbs and then starting to live them out and speaking well and, and making good decisions. We can see wisdom personified again in the person and work of Jesus, who has lived a life that we, sh we should attempt to emulate, that we should also believe in his work for our salvation and live out in a way that demonstrates wisdom that he has allowed us to see. My hope tonight is that we begin to move beyond guilt and shame. My hope tonight is that we begin to celebrate wisdom, to sit, to be wherever we are and to, to choose whether we will pursue life or whether we will pursue death. But for us, that choice is not just about making wise decisions. That choice is about following Jesus or not following Jesus. And that is before us today, not just women, but men and women alike to pursue the wisdom that we have seen embodied in the person and work of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of TRP's podcast. The Restoration Project is a church affiliated with a Cooperative Baptist Fellowship located in Salisbury, Maryland. If you're in the area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sundays at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, we believe that there is room for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.RestoreSBY.org. And for past teachings, feel free to check out our SoundCloud page at www.SoundCloud.com slash RestoreSBY. Or to make it easier, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We hope to see you soon.